0: Hello and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller, as always. And I am Martin Cook, as always. And what is it, day 653 of the apocalypse? 654, I believe. (laughs) Oh, shit. Regardless, this is another episode of the Century Series where we cover 10 movies from each decade from 1920 to 2020. The world may be at a standstill, but we're chugging along right through these movies for you. The Fantabulous Listening Audience. Before we dive in, though, at the time of this recording, it was recently announced that AMC, the United States' largest theater chain, is banning all films from Universal Studios because Universal is starting to pivot to video on demand rather than theatrical release. I think AMC is cutting off their nose despite their face here, but what do you think about this blood feud?
1: Yeah, and I guess uh, other chains like Regal and and others have started to to follow suit as well and start to ban mm-hmm. Universal. It's it's a tough position either way. I think it's AMC and others, I think they have to try to play hardball because they're really in a corner with this at this point. They have to push back or else their business model is just going to suffer irreparable harm and they're basically going to be totally screwed. So, I can see where they're coming from it's just uh, it's it's a really tough thing because in the end they're probably going to lose in the end yeah, they, they, have no they leverage. need the product that the studios del- deliver so yeah they don't they don't have much leverage on on universal's side for me really troll's world tour it seems like a strange hill to choose to, to go to war over doesn't yeah. it <laughs> but, <laughs> all right i guess sometimes these things happen over the the tiniest details
0: It made a shit ton of money, though, from video on demand. I mean, you know, all these parents locked with their kids in quarantine. You can only watch Frozen 2 so many times. (laughs) That's true.
1: (laughs) Anything to get them two free hours, I guess. Right. Yeah, and well, and the next thing, obviously, that this leads into is the fact that the Oscars have now also recently announced – That they're going to make an exception. They call it an exception for twenty twenty one, but who knows what'll happen after awards beyond that? That movies to be in contention for Oscars won't have to have had a theater run, as long as as long as or won't have to have had a theatrical release, as long as a theater run had been planned before all this. Now, again, right. wh- how how they define whether or not a theater run had been planned, I don't know. But this <laughs> also seems like opening the door a crack to something pretty major. And it's going to be hard to close that door again, I think.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is definitely the natural evolution of the film industry because, you know, the the main rule was that to be eligible for Oscars, a film had to be in theaters... In an LA theater for at least seven days, and that's kind of an arbitrary rule. I mean, it just—it's the Oscar voters and the Academy just want to keep Hollywood at the center of the film industry.
1: Yeah, it's why it's right why movies like Roma, and um, uh, and a couple of others from Netflix have had very, very limited runs in sort mm, of... The two, Irishman. The Irishman, yeah, sort of two theaters in L.A. and one in New York for a week or two, and
0: that's it. Yeah, just to meet the very base minimum requirements. And uh, it's, it's, it, the old guard is uh, going to be drag-kicking and screaming into this new, uh, this new era of filmmaking, most notably Steven Spielberg, who's been the uh, most outspoken critic of just uh, streaming in general.
1: And I can kind of understand where he's coming from. Guys like that, whose movies are made to be seen on the big screen, it sort of... To, for them it takes away why they got into the movies in the first place why they started doing filmmaking because they early on went and saw movies like one of the ones that's going to be on our list on this podcast well in part two 2001 space space odyssey that's the reason why some of these guys got into filmmaking because they saw these incredible films up on the big screen and that's what they love about it and so i can see why it's it's hard just for them to see that slip away
0: Yeah. And I can totally, totally respect that. I mean, you and I both love going to the theater as just an experience, but you know, the film industry is going to have to evolve. It always has evolved and it's, it's just the way it is. And it's just been expedited by this pandemic.
1: Yeah. And they're, they're just going to have to adapt. And of course, this is exactly what theater chains like AMC are worried about. And, and so it's understandable as well that they'd react and try to do something i don't necessarily think that something is going to work but they, they they had to try to, to play hardball in some way or another and really this is the only uh, this is the only leverage they've got even if it isn't much
0: right so today on the century series is part 1 of the 1960s <laughs> The 1960s. It's the decade of counterculture, the Vietnam War, Woodstock, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Summer of Love. Gone is the vapid idealism of the 1950s, and it's replaced by a mistrust in government that hadn't been seen in the U.S. since 1776. The Beatles, The Stones, Hendrix, The Doors, Santana, and countless other legendary bands dominate the record collections of a new generation. Oh yeah, and man steps foot on the moon for the first time. It's far out, man. Martin, it's time to turn on, tune in, and drop out. What's on the agenda for today? Well, for
1: part one, we're going to look at five movies from the early part of the decade. Those five are The Apartment, from 1960, To Kill a Mockingbird, 1962, Lawrence of Arabia, from 1962, Eight and a Half, an Italian film by Fellini, from 1963, and Goldfinger, in 1964. But stay tuned for for part two coming up in a week or so, because then we'll be looking at movies in the second half of the decade, including The Good, Bad and the Ugly from 1966, The Graduate from 1967, 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, and then really into the counterculture with Easy Rider from 1969. But that'll come in part two. For now, we're looking at the first five I I've mentioned.
0: And we're starting out with The Apartment in 1960. It's the fourth, that's right, the fourth Billy Wilder joint we're covering in this series after Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, and Some Like It Hot. It's also the second film we're covering where Wilder collaborates with all-time funny man Jack Lemmon. It's a romantic comedy starring Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and our old pal Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity who really played some dastardly characters before doing a complete 180 and starring in several live-action Disney movies, as well as the dad in the sitcom My Three Sons. Anyway, the apartment is the story of C.C. Bud Baxter, played by Jack Lemmon. He's a mid-level insurance clerk. He's a total pushover, and he's willing to do anything to climb the corporate ladder. In this case, that involves letting his superiors use his one-bedroom Manhattan apartment to engage in extramarital affairs. It's a really risque plot line for its time, and another nail in the coffin for the archaic Hayes Code. Bud falls head over heels for an elevator operator named Fran Kubelik, played by McLean. She's an elevator operator who, unfortunately for Bud, is having an affair with Bud's boss, played by McMurray. So you can imagine Bud's reaction when he finds out that the girl he likes is banging his bosses in his apartment. Just think of the smells and the cleanup afterward. Ugh. Bud gets sent to the friend zone by Fran and she tries to kill herself in his apartment after being relegated to the role of mistress by the boss. Bud confesses his feelings to Fran, albeit it's when she's comatose from a barbiturate overdose. Bud eventually grows a pair and stops letting his bosses use his apartment for a fuck palace. Fran eventually realizes that she can have real love with Bud and, in the climactic scene, runs to his apartment. We've seen that in countless romantic comedies since. They don't have the classic confession of love followed by a passionate kiss. Rather, it's an understated yet really sweet scene where they play bridge on the couch where this iconic line is uttered. I love you, Miss Kubelik. Three. Queen. Did
1: you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely
0: adore you. Shut up and deal. While it's considered an all-time classic today, the apartment had mixed reviews on its release. Critic Hollis Alpert called it a dirty fairy tale. And another critic, Dwight MacDonald, called it a paradigm of corny avant-gardism. How's that for pretentious? Fred Murray later recalled being accosted by women in the streets for, quote, making a dirty, filthy film. Guess they never saw a Double Indemnity, though. Despite all that, it was nominated for ten Academy Awards, winning five, including Best Picture and Best Director. It's number 80 on the AFI 100 list, number 20 on the 100 Years 100 Last list, and number 62 on the 100 Years 100 Passions list. Take it away, Mr. Cook. This is just such a good movie.
1: It's, it's a perfect combination of comedy and tragedy. It's got all of these hilarious lines and just witty and quick banter, all the plays on the the wise bit that mm-hmm. actually also showed up on, on billboards when they were promoting the movie, decency-wise and otherwise-wise, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff is just really clever and hilarious. And yet at the same time, it's also really tragic and sad. It's about both main characters of attempted suicide, one during the film, and, and then Jack Lemmon's character talks about how he tried at one point as well. So mm-hmm. it's for me, it's, it's there haven't been too many movies that I've ever seen that I've, that have straddled that divide between comedy and tragedy quite as well as this movie.
0: Yeah, I think out of all the wilder films we've done, Uh, And as much as I love Sunset Boulevard, I think this might be his magnum opus because, like you said, he straddles that line so perfectly. In everything he's done, he's been on the total dramatic dark side and the slapstick comedy side. And it feels like his entire career was leading up to this moment. And for somebody that is just lauded as one of the greatest directors of all time, I mean, for him to make four movies on our list, we couldn't leave off one of them.
1: No, we really couldn't. And we've been leaving off some big directors and big movies, but we just couldn't leave these off.
0: No, because he's so versatile. And every single movie that we've done is so different from the previous one. And that just speaks to Wilder's just innate talent. And we said that uh, double indemnity for somebody that... Had to flee Nazi Germany, and uh, you know English wasn't even his first language. It was. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing artist.
1: He really is, and some of the, some of the turns, some of the scenes in this movie are just incredible. the The one one of the scenes that stands out to me is a lot of movies try to do this thing where there's a big realization, and and half of the time it comes across as really contrived or really cheesy mm-hmm. or hokey. The scene where Jack Lemon sees this cracked mirror in um, in Shirley MacLaine's character's hand and realizes, because it's a mirror that he had given back to his boss because he had found it in his apartment, realizes that the girl that he's in love with is the one who's sleeping with his boss. It's just so clever and heartbreaking at the same time, that scene and that, is that moment when it happens. It's just so incredibly well written.
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's there's really too many superlatives to count for this movie. Uh, Jack Lemon is an amazing actor, and I think he gets kind of um, uh, pigeonholed into the role of just straight funny man. But he has some really good acting chops because there are some really dark moments, as you said, in this movie, and he manages to step up to the plate every single time.
1: He does, he does. But I think beyond anything, he was a comedy genius. He really was. Mm-hmm. Just his, his mannerisms, his expressions, his reactions. Even when he's doing little impersonations of other characters in the movie mm-hmm. that are just spot on and hilarious. Man, he was good. He was just so brilliant.
0: And, yeah, sure, he and, seems-
1: and sorry, yeah, yeah, go on about Jack Lemmon then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And he seems so like fidgety and neurotic, but he manages to reel it in at the right times and then just explode at the right times. He is a master of his craft. I, one of my favorite parts of the movie is his relationship with his neighbors. The neighbors are great because they think, they think that he's banging all these chicks and the, you know, the, 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 the headboard's banging against the wall all the time and he's bringing out like six... To 10 bottles of vodka every night and the guy's like you better watch out for your liver yeah because he's a
1: doctor and then he yeah. wants he wants his character to donate his body to science when he dies it's
0: just you know, brilliant fantastic stuff. and the, the the fact that they just um they made the neighbor a doctor the fact that it comes into play when he has to save Shirley McLean's character I mean everything is just so well thought out and so well paced
1: yeah, and Shirley MacLaine, for me, growing up, uh, all I really knew her from was her sort of weird spirituality stuff about past lives and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> until I saw this movie for the first time a couple of years ago, and she was just incredibly charming earlier in oh, her yeah. career. Her, her career never really blossomed to, I guess she went on and, and was in terms of endearment movies like that, but she never became a massive, massive star, even though she's <laughs> very well-known. But she was, yeah, she was so charming in this movie, I thought.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's some real untapped potential. I think if she really pushed herself, she could have been one of the greatest actresses of all time if she just wanted to work more. But, you know, I guess she didn't. So, you know.
1: Interesting, too, that uh, last time in, in the last podcast, I was complaining a little bit that Billy Wilder didn't make Some Like a Hot in color, and it was black and white, and this is also in <laughs> black and white. He, he eventually, actually a couple years later, did start making some movies in color, but this was the last black and white picture to, to movie to win Best Picture until Schindler's List. So Mm -hmm. this really was sort of a turning of the tide in that direction as well, that Hollywood was really starting to move away from black and whites as being a regular thing.
0: Yeah, and I found the score to be particularly engaging. It's uh, this little piano ditty that I'll play a clip of right now. But it so fits the movie. It's, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking at points. and But it's also, the, the score is played in the climactic scene, and it's extremely uplifting, too. So to be able to play the same notes and elicit those two different emotions based on what the director's trying to do is really impressive.
1: Yeah, it was a really good score. One, one other small little thing that I loved about this movie in the last podcast we talked about the rise of television in the 50s and and how that was a relatively new phenomenon and here we're we're talking about 1960 so it still hadn't been around that long and yet there's a whole scene where television has already become such a big part of life that Billy Wilder can make fun of it, and making fun of <laughs> how the sponsors talk, and Jack Lemon flipping through the four channels he has, and right. it's it's just such a great scene. But I think just so indicative of of how far television had already come at that point.
0: Exactly. Yeah, The Apartment is a must watch for any movie buff.
1: So let's move on then to To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962. This was a movie that was distributed by Universal. It premiered December 25th, 1962. It was based on the enormously popular 1960 book by Harper Lee, which had won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. It's it's impossible now to separate the book and the movie from the context of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, the time period that the book was written in and the movie produced, even though the the movie and the book are set in the 30s. We probably think back now to the movie as kind of a quaint little picture, but at the time, it waded knee-deep in very touchy subjects. Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks refused to give up their seats on buses in 1955, leading to the Montgomery bus boycotts. The National Guard was called out in Little Rock in 1957 to prevent integration. Freedom Rides took place in 1961. And then this movie, and then the March in Selma didn't take place until 1965. So all these racial issues that are in this movie were at the forefront of people's minds at the time. The big star of this film was Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck was already a big movie star before this. He'd been nominated for four Oscars and starred in big movies like Roman Holiday and The Guns of Navarone. But he embodied this role so well that for many people he became inseparable from the character of Atticus Finch. And actually, he may have even started to believe it himself, because as he grew older, he became an outspoken advocate for numerous political and humanitarian issues.
0: Well, it's not a bad character to be associated with, I'll tell you that. Not too bad,
1: yeah. And if you have to try to emulate uh, character and sort of make that into who you are in real life, Atticus, you could do a lot worse than Atticus Finch. Mm. And actually, that's kind of how a lot of people thought, too, because one other way that this movie was very influential was that, uh, for better or worse, a lot of lawyers or a lot of people saw this movie and claim now that this movie was the inspiration for why they they went into law. Mm. Uh, Again, for better or for worse. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This film also featured Robert Duvall in his first feature film role, who became later just such an incredible actor in, in numerous films. So what's the story? The story, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, and I'm sure almost everybody is because you've either seen the movie or have read the book or, or heard about it, it's about two kids, Scout and Jim, who live in a small town in Alabama. And they're running around in the summer with their friend Dill, daring each other to go near the house where the neighborhood boogeyman Boo Radley lives. Mm-hmm. Their father, Atticus Finch, is a principled lawyer, and when a black man is accused of raping a white woman, he is assigned to the defense. Despite the attacks of racist town people, Atticus turns back violent mobs and gives an impassioned defense of the innocent Tom Robinson. Unfortunately, and unfortunately too true often in real life, it doesn't matter. And Tom Robinson's found guilty and later is killed trying to run away. Scout and Jem are then attacked by the head racist in town, I believe that's his title, only to be <laughs> saved by Boo Radley himself. And so the kids learn a valuable lesson about judging people before you really know them. What are your thoughts, Zach?
0: I had actually never seen this film before. What? Wow, yep. that's shocking. Like, okay,
1: not, not even in not even one of your classrooms where a teacher just
0: threw it that's on. What and then there? To to. Okay. That's what I was just about <laughs> to get to. Okay, just about to get to. Of all the movies that they made us watch while teachers just fucked off and did whatever they wanted, this wasn't one of them. We didn't <laughs> we didn't read the book. Didn't see the movie. Wow. Again, two thumbs up to the American public education system. Our Civil War <laughs> education was gone with the wind, and we didn't see To Kill a Mockingbird. So there you go. <laughs> but that said, I really liked it. Um, it's kind of a irreproachable film. It seems like cinematic sacrilege to hate on this film in any way, shape, or form. So I won't. <laughs> no, but no, I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Gregory Peck is the embodiment of this character. I thought um, Mary Bedham, the little girl that plays Scout, was extraordinary, if a bit annoying at times, but, you know, that's kid actors for you. Uh, yeah, I, 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 there were so many twists and turns in this movie that, that I didn't see coming. I thought this was almost like a uh, 12 angry men style movie where the entire movie or at least like 80, 90% of it was going to take place within the courthouse, but we really don't get to the courthouse till well over halfway through, I believe. And, and, that,
1: and that's not even the climax really of the film either. No, it's, it's true. not
0: because I thought it was a story about um, Gregory Peck just kind of, you know, standing up to the injustices and it was like a hurrah, save the day kind of movie. So, when that that poor black guy that was accused got just murdered off screen too i was blown away I, my my jaw dropped i did not see that coming at all so for i think it's kind of cool that i waited so long to see this i mean i, I should have seen it before but uh just to see this for this podcast in in that context was really really cool
1: i think i've seen it i've definitely seen it a few times and i've read the book and yet still, despite all that, at the end of Atticus Finch's great speech, we'll, we'll give a short clip in a second, at the end of that, it was still almost a gut punch when Tom Robinson still loses the case. Mm. And of course, maybe this just proves that I'm a white guy watching this, because of course, any black person's like, yeah, of course you lost. That's just what happens <laughs> yes. in the justice system. But it still kind of hit me. I Oh, come on. Really? He's still They still found him guilty? But it's just that is obviously the courtroom scene is what most people remember from it and Atticus Finch's great closing argument. So let's give a listen to a little bit of that right now. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence that you have heard come to a decision and restore this man to his family. it's just it it's a fantastic speech it's it's as you said it's it can't be you just can't say anything bad about the speech or that whole setting sure maybe this isn't the kind of film that's or story that would be very popular today because it definitely has elements of the white savior trope mm. and of Tell course that it's Aaron
0: Sorkin yeah yeah i guess
1: and maybe it's hard for me as a white guy from Canada to speak with any authority on this, so if people want to be upset about it, that's the right. But I'd like to think, that actually, that really what it is is more of Atticus acting as an ally rather than a savior, uh, an ally, mm-hmm. as we'd say in today's terminology. So I'd like to think that it still stands the test of time. But I think because Atticus Finch, and you touched on this a little bit, he's almost too perfect of a character. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why the protagonist is really Scout, and and yeah, it works sure. that I mean, way. She's the one narrating it, yeah. And it's really about her journey and what she learns along the way, even though everybody thinks about this as Atticus Finch's story and Atticus Finch's movie.
0: Yeah, he is completely unmovable, and for a for a white lawyer in Alabama of all places in the sixties. That I mean, that was one of the the hotbeds of the civil rights movement and still to this day on the whole, one of the most racist States in the union uh, for him to take that stand at the risk of his own life and his own family and his own career. Really it was a, it's the definition of a morality play. It really
1: is. And and we've talked about great character introductions before on this podcast and just in general and how about the, the the character introduction for Atticus Finch? I mean, right off the bat in that first little scene, we learn that he's a lawyer. He accepts food from poor farmers in exchange for his services, but he's also sensitive enough sensitive enough to realize that they might be embarrassed about this. He's mm. just right off the bat within the first minute and a half, you realize, okay, this is a wholly noble person. Just a fantastic character introduction.
0: He does kill a dog, which goes against everything I believe in, but he, it was a rabid dog, so I'll give him a pass on that one.
1: He, he de- yeah, he does, he does. And another character I really like, I love the character, uh, the kid who played Dill. Yeah, the, their friend. That kid, that kid was hilarious. And supposedly, just a little bit of trivia, that character was actually supposedly based on Harper Lee's childhood friend, Truman
0: Capote. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. I didn't know that one. That's interesting.
1: Oh, and uh, just one more side note. Next Halloween, I'm definitely going as Ham.
0: <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> the
1: the worst slash best Halloween costume of all time.
0: Like, almost nobody will get it, but the few that do in your ham costume, <laughs> it's going to be worth it. <laughs>
1: Especially because it's such a, an amorphous blob that they have to say ham so they yeah. you know what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, yeah, the climax is really thrilling too cuz the whole um like circle back around and Boo Radley kind of saves the day. Um I don't know if the story as a whole really needed Boo Radley, but it kind of just drives home the main theme of the story that we can't judge a book by its cover, you know, whether they're, you know, a different color skin or they just happen to be a a recluse that just is antisocial, but really is good at heart.
1: I I think it was important in in that Scowd is the main character, because really that's what her connection is to, that's her big booey man, right, is is this Mm -hmm. Boo Radley guy. It is interesting that the end of the movie, despite this being Atticus Finch and courtroom and law and justice and all that, the moral of the story at the end of the film is kind of don't trust the legal system. Right? Mm. Like even the sheriff at the end is like, "Okay, we don't really need to tell everybody the whole truth here, right mm-hmm. uh, so I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting that that's the the end that the note that it ends on, but
0: yeah, and like I said on the in the intro like the the idealism of the fifties is long gone now it's It's all about subverting the uh the norms that have kept so many minorities and uh, people uh, disadvantaged people just down in the gutter for so long like not everybody had the you know the tv dinners or a tv even and you know the white picket fence and a golden retriever and the whole nine yards so we're finally kind of starting to scrape down and dig deep into the troubles that society has had since the beginning of time so next up Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is a true epic in every sense of the word, from its length to its scale to its scope and even its score, which you just heard a bit of. Directed by the phenomenal David Lean and written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, it tells the story of T.E. Lawrence and is based on his autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It has an all-star cast of British actors, including Peter O'Toole as Lawrence, Obi-Wan, I mean, Alec Guinness in brownface. Yes, we've graduated from constant blackface to prevalent brownface in these movies. So, baby steps, I guess. Omar (laughs) Sharif, Anthony Quinn, and guess who's back? Our boy, Claude Rains. Yes. The master of disguise, and for my money, the best character actor in Hollywood history. He just always seemed to find himself in the right film at the right time, and I don't know who his agent was, but he should be the highest-paid agent of all time. (sighs) Fuck, where to start with this one? It's a damn near four-hour movie, but so much is packed in that it doesn't really drag at all that much. A little bit here and there, but that's going to happen with a four-hour movie. It starts off with a major spoiler in that the beginning of the movie is the death of Lawrence in 1935. We cut to his funeral, then we flash back to find out who this man is that we just saw die in a motorcycle crash. Then the whole movie's a flashback. TE Lawrence is a British lieutenant in World War I. He's a great warrior, but a just terrible soldier. He's insolent, pretentious, and disobeys orders whenever he deems fit. He's also the smartest and most clever man in the room wherever he goes. He's sent to aid an Arabic tribe in their revolt against the Ottoman Empire, Britain's main antagonist in the Middle East. He does a f- damn fine job of it, uniting rival tribes to organize and execute an attack on a pivotal Turkish strategic outpost. Lawrence is hailed by the Arabs at every turn and develops a major messiah complex as a result. We go back to Atticus Finch. This is the like white messiah archetype. He, <laughs> you know... Uh, he grows to believe that he is the savior of the Arab people and starts to think himself think of himself as more Arab than Englishman. It's all for naught, though, as he fails to deliver on his promise to give the Arabs a unified nation of their own. It's a fantastic character piece of a man constantly at war, not just on the battlefield, but with himself. It was immediately hailed as a marvel of modern cinema. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning seven, including Best Picture and Best Director, the two big ones. It's number seven on the AFI list, even though I don't think it even belongs on this particular list, just because 98% of the people involved were British, but... Yeah, it's basically oh a well. British movie. Yeah. Just like Bridge over the River on the River Kwai and... Yeah, that was David Lean as well. Interestingly, we almost never had Steven Spielberg because of this film. It's his favorite film of all time, and he was so blown away when he first saw it that he almost quit trying to be a filmmaker. He he, he was just like, I could never make a film as perfect as Lawrence of Arabia. Imagine a world without Steven Spielberg, man. Wow, I hadn't heard Ugh. that story. That's, that's yeah. incredible. So... Martin, what are your thoughts on Lawrence of Arabia?
1: Uh, As you said, where to start with this one? Mm -hmm. I I guess I'm going to start with the screenwriting, just because Robert Bolt, the screenwriter, is one of my favorite screenwriters of all time. His dialogue in particular is just so clever. He writes these sentences that just have such meaning and gravitas to them, and yet at the same time he'll throw in witty banter every once in a while that's just fantastic and cutting. Like There's there's that one scene where, right near the beginning where his superior officers can't really figure him out. And the superior officers, I can't figure out if you're a bloody madman or just half-witted. And Lawrence's response is, I have the same problem, sir. <laughs> and that other scene where, where Lawrence walks in with his, uh, with his uh, I guess, servant, his Arabic servant, into this tent and they're all dusty because they've just walked across the desert. And walks up to the bar and he says, "Sir, sir, this is an officer's bar." And as he responds, "That's okay, we don't mind."
0: Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah,
1: fantastic. But he he also just writes these, as I said, just these incredible soaring this incredible soaring oratory. I just I just love him as a as as a writer. Uh, and as you said, this movie is just as much about. The internal battles that Lawrence is fighting, as it is about the external battles during during World War One, it's yeah, it's a little sad that Hollywood still hadn't figured out that you don't need white dudes to play Arabic people, with the exception of Omar Sharif, I guess. <laughs> but the cinematography, I guess, mm. would be the, this this sweeping images of the desert are just so incredible. And as you said, the score is fantastic. It just so perfectly suits whatever's going on at any one time on screen and just adds to the emotion of every moment without being overpowering. It's just a masterpiece film from start to finish.
0: This is where I believe the match cut originated. And for those of you that don't know what a match cut is, it's where an image kind of leads into the next scene and the image that's in the beginning scene mirrors the one that's in the next scene. And we'll have... Uh, the match cut of all match cuts is in 2001, which we'll get to. But where when Lawrence, after the first couple scenes, blows out the match that he has in his hand and we see the sun come up where the match was in the other scene, and that's our first look at this Arabian desert. Oh, God. It, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It was absolutely perfectly done incredible filmmaking
1: it, it really is and just the themes that it deals with and it mean, hi- highlights a truth that's been borne out many times in history mm-hmm. obviously that military victory is often a lot easier than governing afterwards mm. which is uh, probably a theme that needs to be repeated because people keep making that same damn mistake over and over <laughs> again but this movie clearly demonstrates that and it's just it's such an emotional movie and Peter O'Toole, I, I'm not sure that there are too many actors who could have done it the same way. He, he really is much in the way that Gregory Beck embodied Atticus Finch. He really embodies Lawrence of Arabia. He just becomes this guy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And his his eyes definitely stole the show because he's always really tan and really dusty. And then he opens his eyes and they're just so pale blue that, you know, this is the Englishman that stands out in this sea of brown eyes that the Arabs have. And it's it's kind of no wonder that he thought of himself as a savior because he just defied the odds at every turn. And even when he gets shot, he just shrugs it off. Like, he need a, he's, I think he said he need a golden bullet to kill me. That's what it was, yeah. And... It turns out that he just dies in a run-of-the-mill motorcycle crash, which is just like, again, with the 60s, we're really getting into dark territory here, really um, cynical, and just examining the world as it is. As, instead of how it should be, which is what film has been for since really the 20s.
1: Yeah, the one thing that I thought was really interesting about this movie, again, in contrast, I guess, to Atticus Finch in the, in the previous one we just discussed, is he's very clearly not a black and white good or bad. Character. Right. There's, there's so much nuance, and this is just explicitly stated right at the beginning, where all these guys were showing up to his funeral before we get the flashbacks to what actually happened. They still don't quite know what to make of him, and nobody really understood him. And there's debates about who, what kind of person he really was. Some people thought he was great. Some people thought he was a self-aggrandizing bastard. And it's uh, it's it's really interesting that, as you say, we're getting into we're getting into nuance. We're getting into the gritty. Uh, type of thing here it's it's no longer just black and white characters and that's 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 fantastic too
0: yeah you mentioned that funeral scene and that really parallels the beginning of citizen kane i noticed when i was watching it which is another reason why i'm glad we're doing this century series because the main character dies then immediately we cut to this main character's funeral where everybody's talking about him but Nobody really knows him because he was so kind of uh, an enigma in and of himself. And I just thought that was cool because we did Citizen Kane in our 40s podcast. And it was almost a mirror scene in this movie as well.
1: Yeah, Citizen Kane's influence obviously still reaching reaching filmmakers in, into the 60s and, and beyond. And I'm sure this point has been made elsewhere, but I was struck again watching watching it again. How much of an influence this movie must have had on Frank Herbert, who published the the landmark science fiction novel Dune only three years later? There's Mm. just so many parallels. And so with uh, Denis Villeneuve currently developing a new movie version of that book, I'll definitely be watching to see those influences again and see how many of them seep into the new movie version of Dune.
0: Yeah, this is one of those truly timeless movies that will hopefully live forever. It's definitely... Uh, fully adult movie, because I, I think I tried to watch this at one point when I was like 15 or 16, but you need to have uh, at least a rudimentary knowledge of World War One to really follow the story, because this movie kind of assumes that you know what's going on, and it was, when I was when I tried to first watch it, it was really, really hard to pay attention. I was impressed with the acting and the cinematography originally, but you kind of need to have your smartphone in your hand with Wikipedia open to really like track what's going on here because they're not going to babysit you through this movie, which is, uh, I love that because so many movies nowadays do try to hold the audience's hand and kind of walk you through the movie where they just kind of insult your intelligence. And this is a movie for intelligent people.
1: (laughs) And for me, often the sign of a, of a good movie is that it actually gets me engaged to go and look stuff up afterwards, which even though I'd already seen this movie a couple of times, I did again. I looked up some of the specific Arab leaders that were referenced and saw who was based on, which ones were based on real people, which ones were invented for the, Mm -hmm. for the movie. And another good sign of a good movie.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Lawrence Arabia, we could go on about this for, as long as Probably the movie a, is. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, let's move on. So our next movie is Eight and a Half from 1963. This is an Italian film by Federico Fellini, which premiered in Rome on February 13th, 1963, and was released in North America on June 24th of that same year. Now, Fellini was already a very well-known director at this point. His 1960 film, La Dolce Vita, had been universally well-received and had even garnered six—sorry, uh, four Oscar nominations, including one for him for Best Director, which was fairly rare at that point for a foreign language film and still to this day is, is fairly rare, despite the success of, of um, Parasite from Parasite, last year. Yeah. <laughs> but for his next film, Fellini, Fellini had already started thinking about a story involving a man suffering from creative block but he really had no idea who the character was or what the story was about and that's when life began to imitate art or art began to imitate life or whichever way in a very direct manner because Fellini had set dates for the start of production with his producer and so when he had to launch the film he gave a speech to the crew And it was only at that moment that finally, in his mind, the story fell into place about making a film about a director who no longer knew what story he wanted to tell. So the production was quite chaotic, and many of the scenes were improvised, as was the style at the time for a lot of Italian films. The soundtrack was entirely dubbed afterwards, and so in a few of the scenes, the actors are just mumbling nonsense, and you can actually see it at times where the lips don't really seem to be matching up with whatever the sound is. Right. When, when the film was finally released, it received almost universal acclaim around the world. It won two Academy Awards, one for Best uh, Foreign Language Film and Best Costume Design, and was nominated for three others, including Best Director again. It went on to inspire numerous avant-garde filmmakers around the world, particularly in the U.S. in the 70s, when outdoor filmmakers really had their heyday. All right, so what is this movie about? Good fucking question. (laughs) 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 On the surface, it's about a director suffering from writer's block who goes on a health retreat to get ideas for his next film, only to be hounded by producers, actors, actresses, and agents, while at the same time he tries to decide whether or not he wants to remain married to his wife when she shows up to the retreat, even though he brought his mistress along with him and then basically ignored her for the whole time. (laughs) But really... I think it's about how much of our personal lives go into creative work and whether or not these things can ever be separated and mm. also if true happiness can be found in isolation and compartmentalizing elements of our lives. What was your take on 8 sec?
0: This is one of the weirdest fucking movies I've ever <laughs> seen in my life, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, I watched it well over a week ago. And I'm still not quite sure what to make of this. It was beautifully shot. Absolutely beautifully shot. Uh, it was funny in a lot of places. Uh, you can kind of get that, you know, you definitely get the vibe of that Italian sarcasm, sarcasm that, uh, is so famous. And the banter between the characters was always really good. Uh, people were always talking about people that were like three feet away from them behind their backs. Uh, I just have no clue how to interpret it though. Honestly, (laughs) I try to pride myself on, you know, figuring out an ending for myself and then going and researching it. But for this one, there's so many different interpretations, especially at the end. Like, is he really dead? Did he actually shoot himself? And, uh, I have no idea. Yeah, who knows at that point?
1: I'm guessing no, but I don't know. I think it's it's interesting that it's completely different from the last Italian film that we watched in this series, Bicycle Thieves, in the in the forties mm. podcast, which was a neo realist movie. Whereas this one is the opposite; it's very avant garde and surrealist. And as you said, you never really know what the hell's going on at any one more at any one time. I think I like it more. After having thought about it for a few days, than I did when I was actually watching it, mm. I think there are more things that kind of fell into place for me a little bit in terms of how I interpreted it, at least. As I was watching it, I just it was a lot of confusion, and okay, well, where is this coming from? And then there's this random scene, and how does that fit together? But after a few days of thinking about it a little more, I, I think I enjoy it more in in retrospect. It's interesting though that he's got that character of the writer who's been brought on to criticize his draft of the script that he wants to, of the of the script that he's written for the film he wants to make, mm-hmm. and the writer keeps criticizing elements of the of the film, and it's almost as though Fellini's using that character to try to preempt criticism of his own film in a meta oh, yeah, way, good point. right? Totally. But I'm not entirely sure that it works because I think a lot of those fictional criticisms are actually quite valid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the criticism of episodic memories not necessarily coalescing into a coherent story or theme. I definitely found that. There's all those random flashbacks to the main character's life when he was a kid. And, and they're
0: not even really flashbacks, though. Yeah. They're like they're fantasy weird dream sequences. Sequence, yeah. Exa-
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm not sure that they all came together. I think some of them fit into a theme, but definitely not all of them. I think a lot of them were just kind of random.
0: Yeah. I think he tried to make it all work when they did the whole harem scene where all of the uh, women in his life just kind of came together in this fantasy sequence. And, uh, just <laughs> but he, even that he couldn't make it work. <laughs> even in his own fantasy, all the women in his life just totally betrayed him in the end. And uh I thought uh Marcello Mastroianni 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 there we was go. excellent. Uh it's we really haven't seen too many protagonists in glasses <laughs> since uh you know the uh, uh, the Harry Lloyd days. You know we got Atticus Finch, but he's supposed to be this kind of nerdy lawyer type. <laughs> but he like <laughs> he's just this like player. <laughs> that's this very very successful, but you know tortured soul in the the world of cinema. And I thought he did a great job uh, portraying whatever the fuck it was that Fellini was trying to portray. I don't know what it was, but he did a good job of it. <laughs> And uh, this movie takes a good 20, 25 minutes to settle into, I guess, because I thought this was going to be one of those real surrealist movies that you'd see kind of in one of those dark rooms at the Getty or the Broad or the, 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 at the Met where you just walk in, watch five minutes of it and walk back out. But it's 10 hours long. <laughs> but uh, it, it took a while for me to actually realize during the, uh, the holy water ceremony that that was actual reality. So I think on a second, on a rewatch, I would kind of appreciate it more. But I, w- I was just so confused. It's definitely one of the ones where I was checking my phone to see the, how long was left because I just couldn't wait to start looking up theories and how different critics responded to this. It was, it was wild.
1: I, th- I think one of the things that added to the confusion from a, f- from a filmmaking perspective is that there aren't that many establishing shots. Mm-hmm, a lot of true. scenes just begin with close-ups. And it jumps from, at times, from a first-person POV perspective to a standard third-person from time to time. So I think Mm -hmm. that just adds to the confusion, too. First of all, you don't really know what your perspective is, and because there aren't very many establishing shots, you jump into a scene without really knowing where you are or what's going on. And so I found that confusing. Obviously, that was a choice of his, maybe to keep the audience a little little off-balance. I think it's... Obviously, the movie is fundamentally, whatever other theories are are around there, it's fundamentally about the creative process, or at least one person's creative process. But I think, I don't know, I think it raises some interesting questions, not necessarily the movie itself, but discussion around the movie about what is art and what is artistic. Uh, There's a lot of people who seem to believe that art needs to be spontaneous and less structured to be authentic, and I'm not sure that I agree with that, actually, mm. but there are definitely people who, who would, would hold that point of view.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's outsider art where, you know, psycho criminals take their own feces and throw it against the wall. Is that art? Is that unstructured? <laughs> yes, it's unstructured, but is that really art? And that goes into this whole other discussion that we could go on for, for days about what makes art because it's the most subjective Thing that humans have ever created.
1: Exactly. One final note, just to to bring it to modern times. Obviously, Tarantino steals a lot from everybody, but I never realized that's where he got that. This film was where he got the dance moves from Pulp pulp Fiction. When those, (laughs) it's obviously it's a direct crib between the one where Uma Thurman and and John Travolta are dancing together. They're they're doing it's it's obviously a, a. a callback to eight and a half—that scene when they're all uh, dancing around at dinner—I thought that was that was really
0: interesting. Totally, and we'll get a lot more into Tarantino cribbing later. <laughs> Now for Goldfinger, James Bond. You know him, you love him. You know the music, you know the quotes, you know the cars, the clothes, the watches, women, and the drink. It's not the first Bond film, but it's definitely the one that set the tone for the rest of the series, which has run for almost 60 years now. It's actually the third Bond movie, but it's the first to introduce the heavy use of gadgets, a major set piece before the credits, a bunch of exotic locales, and a ton of double entendre and dunk t- uh, tongue-in-cheek humor. Not the least of which is the name of the Bond girl, Pussy Galore. Cannot believe they got away with that. I <laughs> <laughs> still don't know
1: how the hell that happened.
0: Played by Honor Blackman. It's the first fide Bond blockbuster. Say that five times fast recouping its $3 million budget in a mere two weeks and going on to gross $46 million in its initial theatrical run. Sean Connery plays Ian Fleming's Bond James Bond, 007, a British secret agent for MI6 at the height of the Cold War. His mission, to stop Auric Goldfinger, played by Gert Frobe, from contaminating the gold reserves in Fort Knox so that his own gold reserve skyrockets in worth obviously bond succeeds in his mission kills the bad guy gets the girl and saves the day i know you're a big time bond fan martin and i'm sure you're practically bouncing in your seat waiting to talk about this one so take it away
1: look i, I love bond movies more than i logically should I just, <laughs> and this is definitely one of the best of the bunch of course they re, they're they're ridiculous but they know it and revel in it and that's part of what makes them so great I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, so <laughs> this was a, a rewatch over rewatch over rewatch, I, but this was obviously the first time that I've watched it, really trying to study it and, and, and take a look at it with a, a critical eye, and I was surprised. The opening is amazingly tight. Like five minutes in, he's already blown up the enemy layer, hit on a girl, survived an assassination <laughs> attempt, and thrown out a cheesy after-kill quip. That's that's a awesome <laughs> lot to pack into the first five minutes. That's incredible. You already know what's happening. It's, it's so good. And Settle down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you said, we, cho- no, we chose this one it. instead of Doctor No as the uh, or any of the others because this was where they introduced a lot of the different things, including the Aston Martin DB5 car, which is just an awesome vehicle. And I love how and one of the other things I love about this movie is is how Goldfinger is introduced as a villain, mm-hmm. because he's not introduced as a villain killing a whole lot of people or doing some horrible dastardly thing. No, he's just. Especially for a Bond movie, it's very understated. He's just introduced as a villain because Bond catches him cheating at cards. Right. That's it. That's so good that we just we hate this guy already, just because he's he's cheating this guy out of money at a at a card game. I, I love that. It's uh, look, we're less than ten years away from the death of the Hayes Code, and Bond's already been with three million, the three women, and fifteen minutes into the movie. <laughs> the, it's just. I love Bond so much, and really, and and especially in in this movie, it's all the different characters that make it, from M to Q to all the side characters and villains, and half of the fun of these movies is the way Bond and the Bond character and archetype plays off of all of them, and that definitely came through in this movie.
0: Yeah, I think your love for Bond might equal or surpass my love for Disney, which is <laughs> profound. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, uh it just uh there's so many tropes in this movie that have just been repeated and repeated and repeated through what is it, 23 movies now? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And you know, Oddjob is one of the best uh henchmen that you could ever want <laughs> in a movie. I remember playing him as a character in the N sixty four game Goldeneye back in the late nineties and he was like a like a human cheat code because he could throw his hat and kill you in one one shot. <laughs> but uh and bricks
1: that- just bounce off of them, um, apparently gold yeah. bricks.
0: <laughs> but this is my first time watching Goldfinger, believe it or not. What? Wow. Yeah. I've I've been a, a, a Bond fan. Not a super fan, but a Bond fan, but my James Bond growing up was always Pierce Brosnan. The first one I saw was Goldeneye, and then I saw all the ones afterward, but I didn't really go back and watch any of them. Uh, I I saw Dr. No in the late 90s, just so I could see the, the creation of the Bond character, but yeah, I never went back and actually watched Goldfinger, which I'm incredibly glad that I did now, because it was... Entertaining as a motherfucker from minute one to the very end.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad you, you watched it too. Here, here's some cool bit of trivia since we're both movie fans that I discovered this time. I didn't know it until I was doing a little bit of research this time. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin Fan was doing a lot of a young Jimmy Page. He was about 20 years old. He was actually doing a lot of session work in recording studios at the time. And he was there when the theme song was recorded.
0: And oh, no apparently
1: he's not on the main title track that you hear in the in the opening, but he does do the acoustic guitar on the instrumental version that you hear throughout the movie.
0: Oh, wow. So that's, that's awesome. That's Jimmy
1: Page on, <laughs> on Goldfinger, which is pretty that's cool incredible. Shit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, you know, this is the movie that's been parodied by Everything from Spy Hard to Austin Powers, this is the quintessential 60s spy movie. And Ari Goldfinger has one of the greatest quotes in bad guy history right here.
1: I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond.
0: Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. Yeah, I mean, Sean Connery is just so effortlessly suave and debonair. and Yeah, there, there was nobody
1: when he was at his peak. There was nobody cooler, really.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> even the the uh the over the top bad guy death was established in this one where Goldfinger's is sucked out of an airplane window and then you know bond and pussy parachute down and they land safely and <laughs> i love this line too where he says that you know helps on the way they know where he is and he's like oh you know the the Mi6 is coming to help. This is no time to be rescued. <laughs> <laughs> and then he drapes a parachute over them both, and and credits roll. Oh god, so fucking perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's so great. And th- that happened. That was a trope that they used often in Bond, where Bond doesn't right. want to get rescued because he's he's hanging out with the girl at the end. W- one interesting thing, speaking of Bond women, Shirley Eaton, who plays the first. Or one of the first girls at the beginning, the one who gets covered in gold and dies. Mm-hmm. There were tons of rumors around for a long time that she had actually died from putting that paint on her body uh, oh, from I hearing that from the from the movie. And to the point that, she actually appeared on Mythbusters at one point to prove that she hadn't, in fact, died from the paint on her body. And still hasn't because she's still alive and kicking at 83 years old. So oh Yeah,
0: go on a TV show to prove that you're actually yeah, a living that person. You, <laughs> that you haven't died.
1: That's great. I will say yeah. that my, my, one, my one thing that I don't like about this movie, it's very small, but the Beatles reference didn't really age very well. I always cringe at that one. The, uh, where Bond makes some reference to, well, oh, it's almost as bad as listening to the Beatles without earbuds. Oh, right. Yeah, it's, yeah okay. that that's just, it's, it's so weird, too. It's funny because they added lasers, to which weren't actually in the book because the book was written before lasers were a thing, because they wanted to lean into the modern age. But then, for some reason, they didn't do that with their musical tastes. It was just a really weird quote that always makes me cringe every time I watch it. And aside from that, I love this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, that uh, uh, killing the girl by painting her in gold to uh, stuff all her pores was replicated in, was it uh, Quantum of Solace? Yeah. Where the girl was covered in oil. Oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an exact mirror image, except she was covered in black stuff instead of gold stuff. So that was a nice nod that I didn't understand until I watched Goldfinger.
1: Oh, right. Of course. It's also, you, you talked about all the parodies, but it's it's hard to overestimate just how influential this movie was. Like, apparently in 1966 alone, there were 22 different espionage films or TV series. And there's obviously a hundred since, some obviously of varying qualities, but uh, yeah, despite all the imitators... I think that in the words of the theme song from The Spy Who Loved Me. Nobody does it better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. And with that, we conclude part one of the Century series. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you join us in about a week for part two, where we cover the good, the bad, and the ugly, The Graduate, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Easy Rider, as well as all those little segments that you've come to know and love from unsolicited film reviews so as always you can check us out at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com check this podcast out wherever you listen to podcasts still fun to say you can find us also on instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews you can find me personally at zach t miller
1: you can find me at j martin cook cook with an e
0: and we will see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast Sensory Series, The 1960s Part Dill. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Owen. See you next time.